Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. This episode features expert answers to your questions on PrEP in adolescence. I'm joined by Dr. Samantha Hill, who is an assistant professor in the Division of General Pediatrics in the section on Adolescent Health in the Department of Pediatrics at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Eunice Radcliffe, who is an assistant professor of general pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. For the full online educational program, including video roundtables, downloadable slides, and other podcasts in this series, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started with our first question from the audience. Starting out, Iva asks, what is the average age for starting PrEP? So what, in your experience, um, what ages are starting PrEP? Did you want to go first, Dr. Radcliffe? I was going to say, I haven't prescribed it as much as Dr. Heal, so I don't have as much awareness of an age cutoff. I've prescribed it down to age 13. And so um, in in, in the state where I was practicing for that particular time, the parent actually did have to consent. um, And there were circumstances around that individual needing to be on PrEP um, that are not typical of a 13-year-old, but 13 has been the lowest. But I would prescribe it if, if they needed it, like probably 11 would be the, the lowest I go, assuming they're 35 kilos. Thank you. Jason asks, do you have any advice on how to talk to parents about time alone with their healthcare professionals so youth can have more open conversations? Yeah, so this is something that comes up. I work with trainees in the space that I practice, both students and residents. And just based on the general AP guidelines, we start to introduce themes around adolescent medicine or adolescent care. I am a general pediatrician, but I see up to 18. In my previous space, I saw up to 21. And so we start to talk to both the youth and the parent about, hey, we want to offer some time alone to your child. The way that I approach it with those younger youth, um, so at 11, we, I like to say that I want your youth to feel confident in talking about their health, talking about their body, and feeling comfortable talking to providers about their health and their body. And so I want to, you know, it's standard practice for us to offer the patient some time alone um, so that they can have that conversation with me. Many parents are accepting of this. And if a parent ever refuses or if a child is uncomfortable, either because of their developmental level or other concerns, we don't force it upon them. But we start to offer at 11. And I think approaching it that way and starting to talk about maybe even at the nine or 10 year old visit that, hey, next year we're going to offer them some time alone. Um, And I try to engage my patients as young as they're able to engage with me. Um, just how do you feel about what we're talking about? What are your questions to to open that door? And most of our parents are accepting of that. The last thing I'll say in regards to this conversation is also just you always have to gauge based on your patient how comfortable and mature they are to have those conversations. Often with the 11-year-olds, I just say, have you thought about who you're attracted to and Have you thought about relationships? And based on how they respond to that um, is how I approach how detailed I get about, do I really need to talk to this youth about sexual health decisions and then go into more detail patient by patient? But I think you'll be 
well aware of the individuals you need to be explicit about their behaviors. And um, with all of my patients, I'm recommending that they talk about their health with um, a trusted adult, usually their parent. Yeah. And I can't agree more with what Dr. Um, Radcliffe said. I, I think a couple of things I would add is, you know, you could even use it when you're talking to the, the parent and the young person together. Like, um, you know, this is a, this is also an opportunity for you to ask questions about your body that you may be embarrassed to ask because you should not only be asking about sex, but even about puberty related questions. So you might be able to do that. The other thing I would say is don't give up if you get shot down. Um, like I'm able to do this with almost 99 percent of my, my patients, but I mean, I only see 11 and up. But um, if you get shot down, don't give up. Like sometimes it takes several visits with that family for them to be like, okay, this is a safe provider. They respect me. I trust them. They're going to tell me if something's going on. And then they'll eventually, you know, say yes. So sometimes it takes a couple of visits and that's okay too. Great. We've had a couple questions about confidentiality. So what can be done when a young person is still on their parents' insurance? Is the explanation of benefits going to go to the parents no matter what? Yeah. So if they're on public form of insurance, um, and so generally in the U.S., that's going to be Medicaid, they, they, the explanation of benefits should not be a problem. If they're on private insurance, more than likely the explanation of benefits are going to go home. You will, will have some people say, have the teen advocate to like not get that sent home. That does happen. It takes a long time and it takes a lot of knowledge on the young person's part about how to um, navigate those phone calls and things. So I don't necessarily recommend that as everybody, for everybody. I think those teens where the explanation of benefits are going home fall into two categories. One of the categories are those teens who actually just with a little help, encouragement, and support are actually okay starting to initiate this conversation, whether it's about being sexually active, maybe they have a different um, sexual preference or gender, or maybe they just want to be on prep to be on prep. There are those group of teens that actually with little motivation can actually do and start to have that conversation maybe with you alongside them with that guardian. I um, mean, you'd be surprised. The guardian's not going to be thrilled. I'm not, I'm not going to say they're going to be thrilled, but you'd be surprised how many parents or guardians would be like, okay, let's talk this through, um, listen to you, and they'll go, go with it. Um, but then for the other group, you know, I think knowing about Title X clinics, which are um, funded by the national government, I mean, you can go to the Health and Human Service uh, website and type in Title X, um, like the number 10, but it's the X, the Roman numeral into the search bar, and they should be able to show you Title X clinics there nearby you. Um, that's a good place. Other options could be if you have organizations that are called community-based organizations, so they say CBO, or they're called aid service organizations, ASO, a lot of them have different ways and fundings to do PrEP as well, free and confidential, confidentially um, for individuals. The, the downside, right, is usually those have, uh, or maybe are in a spot where the community knows that's like an aid service organization. It doesn't mean that everybody has HIV or anything, but because the AIDS is in the name, right, there's some stigma with that. And so maybe your young person can go there and they usually will see people at least like 16 and up and depending on, you know, what kind of providers they have, maybe even 14 and up, but those are some options. The other thing is to, you know, for some teens, they're not going to be thrilled that the explanation of benefits is going to go home, but they'll still opt to do prep if you tell them up front, like, hey, so just so you know, you're on your parents' insurance. It's possible that this explanation of benefits is going to go home. So your parents may see that we ordered this medicine or your parents may see that we got these tests, meaning the SCI tests, and they may ask questions. Let's talk about what you're going to talk to them about, how we're going to handle that. And it's important to know it's not just the explanation of benefits now, it's the EMR, right? If you have a portal um, that's associated with your electronic medical record, things can be disclosed in that manner too. And so there's a lot of different steps in this. And I'm happy um, to provide my email to answer more specific questions because it can be, it can vary by state and things like that. Thank you. 
Uh, Gerald asks, what new and innovative ways can we come up with or share with each other to increase discussion and understanding about PrEP amongst adolescents and young adults? You know, I think we don't use mHealth well enough. Full disclosure, I'm, a, I'm also a researcher in addition to a clinician, and most of my research is on how we can use um, apps um, to either improve health literacy, improve HIV or PrEP-specific literacy, and improve access. But the same can be done for providers, right? Just like there's um, CDC apps about contraception or CDC apps about STIs, maybe someone on this on this can actually um, create an app about PrEP that's easily updated and accessible to providers. I think the other thing is we have to call each other in and really sit with our group of providers to kind of figure out what the challenges or concerns are. Um, maybe it's just like, I've got too much on my plate and I can't do it and having a simple conversation that shows like your guidelines and Dr. Radcliffe and I are both pediatricians, but it could be AAFP, it could be uh, your nurse practitioner code of ethics, your PA, your OB-GYN, um, it could be whatever. And showing them the recommendations that this is actually part of the standard of care for all of these different medical organizations. Other things that we do um, is really identifying someone that's gonna, that can be a prep champion. And that's going to be someone maybe like myself who has been doing this for a long time and is able to help either answer questions, do prep for you, or help you navigate the systems that you work in. Having those people also speak with you to help you advocate with your colleagues about, you know, how can we get this service going is going to be cool. And then the other thing is really, we're all able to be advocates. And so maybe you can start the conversation in your community. If you have the ability to be on one of the medical podcasts or community podcasts, um, and get a bunch of your provider colleagues to to watch it or your, your clinic colleagues to watch it. That's another way. Dr. Radcliffe, do you have other suggestions? I too saw this question. And I think as a pediatrician, this is actually what brought me into this space. I was in a practice that was following recommended guidelines around screening and treatment of STIs and having some conversations around sexual health. And I just realized we perhaps, we weren't as empowered and as aware as we could have been in helping individuals make sexual, um, better decisions around their sexual health or sexual behaviors. Um, so I have lots of ideas, but I think to answer the question, um, in addition to what Dr. Hill said, I think really getting involved, whether with your local AEP chapter, it may be partnering with some of your community organizations that are doing HIV prevention work that are just adolescent positive or supporting um, adolescent concerns to advocate for resources. It may mean advocate for better education in schools because we know the youth are in schools. Advocate for better education for parents so they can be having these conversations. There's information that helps us to know that our adolescents do listen to their parents to some degree and individuals who are having those conversations, healthy and appropriately informed conversations with their parents are more likely to make some um, better health decisions and not just depending on one or two conversations with their pediatrician or their healthcare professional um, once or twice a year. I think our school-based health centers may be an underutilized space, but again, that takes us back to us having to advocate at the city and state level to allow these conversations in the schools or to allow our healthcare professionals who work in those spaces to provide evidence-based uh, care and have these discussions with, with our youth. So I don't have any one answer, but maybe advocacy at your local level. Um, and then there was a question in the Q&A around 
um, or it was a comment more around, you know, how much our youth are being exposed to um, through social media. And so I think that's a great comment to make because then how do we utilize those same spaces that we know our adolescents are accessing to give them appropriate information and to make it just as catchy as the bad information or explicit information that they're being accessed, they have access to. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of parents, pediatricians, we're fearful to have these conversations, but unfortunately, they're seeing all the stuff that we don't want them to see. So how do we you know, infuse those spaces with correct, accurate information, and then also just make it as catchy <laughs> as the bad stuff they're seeing. Thank you. Lauren asks, as a youth center that just started doing PrEP referrals alongside our HIV, STI, and pregnancy testing, do you have any best practices or tips on helping to get youth to health center and providers that prescribe PrEP? We are always losing youth to follow up, and it has been difficult to get them to show up for their appointments. Yeah, that's a tricky question, and I say that because I've been I've been asked to be one of those providers that works with um, centers in the past, um, and figuring out how to do that. If you can, if it would be ideal if there was a way to walk them, or they literally go across the street, like depending on where your center is, and are able to have special walk-ins available for your clients. Um, so they can go ahead and do their same day prep start, assuming that that's safe to do. And we didn't even get into that today. The other suggestion I would have is actually seeing if your youth clinic could partner with a CBO or particularly an ASO, so that community-based organization or the aid service organization, um, because they usually do have prep space availability and are always trying to reach youth. Um, and so that might be the, the key is, you know, you have a peer navigator that's able to be like, thank you person for agreeing to start prep today. I'm going to be your peer navigator. And if you have time, we're going to walk over to so-and-so place to get it done. The other thing to look into are there are a lot of telehealth prep things. I shouldn't say a lot, but there are a few telehealth prep things across the country, meaning there, um, and I've been on these um, and provided prep through them, telehealth platforms. Um, and so um, if you're able to do all the lab work and things, you can partner with uh, one of the providers that's on these platforms, um, and then they can actually write the prescription for you. So that's another thing that you can think of. All right. Shelly asks, how can more pediatric providers discuss PrEP when discussing HPV at the same time? Um, I think this is an interesting question. I think just, again, we have to continue to normalize PrEP as an option for HIV prevention. So if you wanted to have it a part of your discussion of, hey, this is one way we prevent a cancer, a virus that can cause cancer, different types of cancers, you could say, hey, this is a medicine you could take if and when you, to prevent your likelihood of transmitting HIV. But I think in the same way, just continue to normalize that this is one other option for prevention. And I couldn't agree more. Um, it just work on your, your spiel that you give. So whether you want to lump prep in with HPV vaccine, or you want to lump prep in with condoms, contraception, STI testing, or both, the more you do that, the more easily it just becomes automatic for you. Thank you very much to our faculty and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder to view the full Paths Forward in PrEP, Overcoming Barriers to PrEP Engagement in Principal Populations Program on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day.